Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Pat. Good way to turn our hearts to the Lord as we get ready to look into His Word. Uh, if you go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We've got just a tiny bit of John chapter 11 left, but we will move on into chapter 12 today. Uh, but you might remember that uh, we're coming off of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and then the reactions uh, to that and uh, how different people, uh, whether they believed or whether they chose to actually fight against uh, clear evidence that they had right before them and actually go against Jesus because what they wanted was something different than what he came to provide. Um, Luke tells us that he, he, not too long before this, had said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Some people didn't think they were lost. They thought they had what they wanted. They thought they had power. They thought they had influence, and they thought Jesus was going to take that from them. And that was particularly the Jewish religious leaders that felt that way. And so as we continue on here, we're, just follow along with me, if you would, as I read John eleven fifty five through chapter 12, verse 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And so, as I've been living with this passage this week, and uh, just considering, uh, what, what do I share about this? Stop and, stop and ask, well, why did John include this? Why is this section here in the middle? We're, we're going between you know, the raising of Lazarus and the implications of that and Jesus you know, going away from Jerusalem. Uh, next thing we come to in chapter 12 is the triumphal entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, for the Passover and in that week in which, at the end of that week, he will give his life on the cross. 
So why this, this section about where, where a dinner is given in, in, in Bethany? What, what, what's John trying to help us to see? What, is he trying to prepare us for something? And I think that if you look at this uh, meal that's held in, in Bethany, you might think of it like a holiday meal. Uh, maybe like you know, you're going to your boyfriend or girlfriend's or fiance's family Thanksgiving. That's an important thing to do, right? Because you learn an awful lot about the people who come and sit around that table, right? You watch the interactions. You see what kind of sense of humor they have, who doesn't like who, what kind of, of long-standing family feuds are going on, you know, what kind of history, what the personality of this family is. And in many ways, this meal that's held with Jesus as the honored guest, and all of the things kind of swirling around it, John is doing that for us as well. He introduces us to a number of different people, and as we see those people, we get an idea of how these different people or groups of people are reacting to Jesus and who he has said, said he is. He said that he is the Christ, the Messiah. He has given evidence again and again, claiming the names, the I am names of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that is God himself. He has claimed God as his own personal father, and the Jewish leaders got that. They said, you do that, you're making yourself equal with God. And now he's raised someone who had been dead for four, in, the, in the tomb for four days back to life basically having to have his body recreated, right, after that long of decay. And how are people reacting? Are they believing? Are they wondering? Are they against him? And John introduces us to, to a number of people in that way. And so we won't go exactly right down through. We'll jump around just a little bit as we go through this passage so that we can get a look at each of these people or groups of people that John introduces us to. So the first group that we encounter in verse 55 is the crowds. Um, these are religiously uh, observant Jews. They cared at least on, on a, uh, a basic level about how they observed the Passover feast, something they were commanded to do in the law. It talks about people who have come a week ahead of time before the feast says that they, they arrived early to be certain that they are ceremonially clean for the feast. That means they can't have been in contact with a dead body or certain things related to Gentiles, different things like that. And so they are at, they're actually a week early just in case they might have come in contact or if on their trip from somewhere else in the country, um, maybe they come in contact with something that made them ceremonially unclean so they wouldn't be able to participate in the feast, in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and all that went along with that. Because there was about a, a week-long process to be made ceremonially clean if you became unclean. You might remember later in this week when they bring Jesus uh, to Pilate's um, residence for him to be judged, the Jews who are bringing him stay outside because to go inside the Gentile house they believed would make them unclean. So a very, very important thing in their minds, 
and, and they had actually taken extra time away from their means of making a living in order to make sure that they could participate and they could be cleansed if necessary when they came. Verse 56 tells us that they were curious people. They were wondering about Jesus. And you know, I'm thinking just as we look at each of these different uh, categories of people or groups of people, there's probably some of us today who fit into each one of these categories. Or you might say maybe your heart has been in one of these categories, certainly in your life, but maybe in the last week, who knows. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to, to take and, and examine our own hearts, use these people as mirrors, and say, well, does that show what I'm like in some way? So this group, they were curious. They were, it says they were seeking for Jesus, and they were speculating about Jesus. They're like, well, will Jesus even really come? These might be people who were those who had witnessed Jesus' recent miracles. After he left the area, after having raised Lazarus from the dead, the other Gospels tell us he went up north and had, had a time of ministry there. And during that time, ten lepers were cleansed. There were some blind people who were healed. Zacchaeus was transformed from someone who lived for money to someone who became a follower of Jesus. But would Jesus show up at all? Because the religious leaders, it's well known that they were working to capture Jesus and to kill him. You know, if we jump, if you, we'll see that down later on in the passage. But this was also a mandatory feast. The Old Testament required at least all males to attend this feast along with some of the others. This crowd is curious. They're looking. They want to see Jesus, but are they committed? Seems like this description, you've got definitely at least quite a few of them that are on the fence. They want to know about him. Doesn't mean they're committed to following him. They'll play a crucial role in the week ahead. They'll be there for the triumphal entry. And people are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But maybe some of these will be there as well when the question is asked, what shall I do with this Jesus? And they will shout, crucify him. Crucify him. And there will always be those who are curious about Jesus. But the key for them is to make a choice about where they stand. See, if you really look at Jesus, if you really interact with him, he's going to push you to either be for him or against him. To be neutral about Jesus really isn't an option. He says there's two categories, those who, are, who believe and those who do not believe. And he asks, well, which, which category are you in? And as the week progresses, events are going to press people more and more. Where are you? Are you with Jesus? Do you believe in him? Have you entrusted yourself to him? Are you with the religious leaders who are against him, who are trying to get rid of him, to get him out of their way because he gets in the way of the things that they want? Then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, we have Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In this section, verses 1 through 11, we really think just about Mary because she has this role of, of anointing Jesus' feet with this precious ointment. But really the three of them 
are acting together. Really, they must have made a plan along with a man named Simon the leper. Matthew and Mark tell us that this dinner was actually held at the house of a man named Simon the leper. And presumably, he's Simon the former leper. Uh, because you don't host dinners with lots of people if you have leprosy. Probably this, this man was healed by Jesus from an impossible disease. Taken from a place of being an outcast, having to be cut off from his family and friends and, and so, society. Jesus had brought him back into his life. And now it's at his home that this meal is held. Who knows? Maybe he was one of the ten lepers that Jesus had just healed not too long before this. So obviously this dinner or supper, depending on which translation you have that they plan, was, was designed to honor Jesus. Because you have Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. You have Simon, who likely was healed by Jesus from leprosy. So this is an exciting time. This is a celebratory time. This is a time of saying, Jesus, we honor you. Jesus, we see you as the Christ. Remember, Martha has made, made before Lazarus's resurrection an amazing statement about who Jesus is, that he's not only the Christ, but he's the son of the living God. And he is the one that had been predicted to come throughout the Old Testament. And each one of these three, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, play a particular role. And what we've learned about these three, you can probably guess before you even read it, right? Where was Martha? She was serving, right? She was making sure everything was lined up. She was making sure the food was on the table, hot and ready to eat. She was using her talents of hospitality. And after her interaction with Jesus before Lazarus was raised, and her strong declaration of who Jesus is, I would think that she's got a whole new focus to her service than the time when she complained because Mary wasn't helping her. Her focus is just on her Savior, wanting Him to be honored, wanting everything to go well. She wasn't worried about what other people were doing or weren't doing, but her eyes were on her Lord. She's a great example for us. And then there was the fellowship that was going on, and Lazarus was right in the middle of that. Lazarus, it says, was reclining at the table with Jesus. He was probably being honored as well at this meal as the one who had, had been dead and now was alive. But imagine the fellowship that's taking place at this table between Jesus, Lazarus, Simon the leper, and the disciples. Can you imagine being in the place of, of, of any of those people who were there with Jesus? And, how, and what are the questions you're going to ask? And what are the things you're going to tell Maybe they talked about the things John didn't, John and the other gospel writers didn't, didn't give us about well, what happened to Lazarus while he was dead. You know, wouldn't you love to have just sat in and, and heard what they talked about? All those uh, praising and, and excitement and fellowship, really, is what you get from Lazarus. Loving to be here with Jesus. Uh, they talked about reclining at the table. That's the way they would eat in that culture, laying down at a low table. Right close to each other's faces, really, and just enjoying that company. It would just be natural for Lazarus to love being with Jesus. 
stop and think about it. If you have trusted Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life and to walk with you throughout this life, haven't we been given a great gift that would make us love being with him? Just love to spend time with him, to talk with him, to hear from him, and walk with him through life. These three are, and Lazarus in particular, are a great example for us. If God has done so much for us, how much should we want to be like Lazarus and enjoy that fellowship with him? And then, of course, there's Mary. Usually, the, the, a lot of times, the others are just passed over quickly. And certainly because Mary's uh, role in this really sticks out. And of course, where do we find Mary? Where she's always, at Jesus' feet, right? Every other place, every place we find her in the gospel, she's at Jesus' feet. And she loves to learn from him. She loves to honor him. And here, a few weeks after he has raised her brother from the dead, she humbly honors him with an act of great generosity and symbolism. And you'll notice in here, it talks about in verse 3 that she took a pound, uh, would, would have literally actually been about 12 ounces, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And so this, this nard, or called spike nard as well, was made from an herb that grows in the mountains of India. So brought a long distance, was of extreme value, was an expensive luxury. Sometimes it was used even to anoint kings because it was so precious. Judas's valuation of it in the following verses of 300 denarii would mean that it's worth 300 days' wages. In other words, this little vial or, or alabaster bottle of ointment You'd have to work as a laborer for a year to be able to afford it. And of course, that doesn't count. Needing to eat and have all those other things, right? A year's worth of labor represented there. Often, it was purchased like an investment, like gold is. And I I have to stop and wonder if maybe this ointment had been set aside as something to help support Mary and Martha in the event of something happening to Lazarus. Maybe after the fourth day, after the seven, or maybe after the seven days of mourning for Lazarus, the plan was, we've got to go sell our, our ointment, our nard, so that we can continue on living. And now, Lazarus having been raised from the dead, their thoughts were, we should honor the one who kept us from having to use this. We should show him to be the one who's worthy to have not just a little bit of this sprinkled on him, but this whole year's worth of labor, anointment, poured on his head and rubbed on his feet. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that she poured it on his head. John gives us the added uh, information that she, she anointed his feet and wiped it with her hair. So it's it's an act of incredible generosity to give up something of great value like this, but it's also an act of great humility. Here here the hostess of the feast pours this, this expensive oil on the feet of Jesus, 
which was a job that a slave should do. A woman of, of Martha's position wouldn't wash the feet of her guest. That was the job of a slave to do. But not only that, she undid her hair, unusual for a Jewish woman in public. And in order to wipe his feet with her hair, where was her head? Bowing down before him at his feet. She was acknowledging his greatness and the fact that she really, one thing she wanted to do, and the one thing that she ought to do is bow down before him as the creator God, as the one who loved her so much. So this is an act of deep love and honor and humility that Mary does for Jesus. And John then adds a sensory uh, experience that was going on. It says, it says that the fragrance filled the house. And Mary's act of humility and love filled the house as well. We can learn a lot from Mary, can't we? About what's truly important and where our focus really ought to be and how important it is to be at Jesus' feet and to honor and glorify the one who came to give himself in our place. And then we have a dramatic contrast because verse 4, we get words from Judas's mouth. They're a very rare thing in the, in the Gospels. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and used to pilfer what was put into it. So Judas's heart and attitude are exposed in great contrast to these three friends who loved Jesus so much, especially Mary. Now, we've only heard specifically about Judas in John's gospel once before. If you jump back to John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, this, that chapter ends with these words, Jesus answered them, did I my... Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So John has let us know in advance what's going on here in Judas's heart, even though at that time none of the other disciples had a clue. You know, when we, you get to the, to the Last Supper and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, all the disciples are like, they couldn't figure out who it would be, so they thought, well, I must be the most likely. Is it I, Lord? I'm not going to do that, am I? They didn't say, oh, yeah, Judas, yeah, he's the one. No, no, Judas fit in perfectly. But John, looking back now, many years after all these events took place, they had discovered his, his thefts, they had discovered his character, and, of course, they had been, been assaulted with his betrayal, right, and looked back. But he had appeared just like the others, but his heart was not with Jesus. And his idea of what Jesus was going to do brought disappointment in him. Obviously, he saw Jesus as going to be Messiah, the king, the one who would defeat the Romans, who would, who would lead Israel to great glory and would enrich him. And in this act, he saw that's not going to happen. In fact, this is a turning point. For Judas, not so much in his heart, but in 
his choice of actions because the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, who talk about this, they say after this event, Judas went out and found the Jewish leaders and made arrangements to betray Jesus. See, his heart loved money more than it loved Jesus. Saw Jesus as a means to an end, not the end itself. And so as he sees this very expensive ointment being poured out on Jesus, his mind isn't saying, oh, that is so right. That is so honoring to our Lord. He's saying, what a waste to pour out that expensive ointment. And one of the things about Judas's words is that they're very religious sounding. He isn't going to come out and say, why don't you sell that perfume and give the money to me? Okay, that, that's what would have happened if they had sold the perfume and to give to the poor, right? They, they, if they'd have sold the perfume, put it in the common treasury, Judas is carrying it, guess what? At least some of that would have gone into Judas's pocket. That's what his heart is saying. But it sounds like someone very religious. Oh, do good and care for the poor. But his intent was more, no, sell it and make me rich. He sees Mary's act as a waste, and he fit in well enough, nobody suspected him. It's a motivation that really matters here. There in verse 6, where, where John you know, reads us into what was going on with Judas as he looks back in retrospect. Because he's not only a thief, but he's a manipulator. And it's a good thing for us to remember that people who bring up doing good things may not always have good motives. People who are religious aren't always doing what God wants. People are often manipulated by appeals to help others, especially when they feel guilty about having not done it in the past. They hear, oh, well, we should help the poor, and you're like, yeah, boy, there's a lot of times I could have helped the poor and I didn't, and boy, you must be right. And Judas is using that to manipulate, to get things the way he wants, and there's a lot of that in the world still today, isn't there? Of course, we've never done anything like that manipulative in order to get what we want, right? That we can see in that mirror, sadly, some of ourselves as well, right? We need to be in guard about that with our hearts. And of course, Jesus couldn't be manipulated by Judas. But Judas reminds us to be careful about our own, our own motivations and the ways that we use our words and the way we present ourselves. Because uh, we can use sounding religious, sounding like a good person, for wrong things, to get our way, to get what we want. And this is the one place here where Jesus speaks. Jesus reacts then to Judas's words in verses 7 and 8. It says, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So in verse 7, Jesus explains Mary's actions. And, and the way it's worded here in John, I have a hard time understanding a little bit when he says, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And, and you know, it's a question of what is it? Um, and it may be his body he's talking about there. But in the Mark account, I think it becomes very clear uh, what Mark records uh, from Jesus' words on that occasion. That it, Mark 14, verse 8 
There it says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Say, Mary is getting me ready for my burial, which is to come. It's going to happen. He's been predicting it, by the way. He's been telling his disciples it's going to happen over the last few weeks since they've left Jerusalem. He's saying, Mary gets it. She's preparing me for what is to come. Mary is doing her part while Jesus is still alive and she can do it for him. And Jesus also tells them, you can still care for the poor. Even if she she pours out this ointment on me, you still have the poor with you always. And he's really echoing the words that God had given through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. If you turn back there, Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, it says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So God is not saying, Oh, don't worry about the poor. Let's just do these expensive religious things. No. But on the other hand, He's not saying, Don't do extravagant things to honor God. Because where does all you have come from anyway? It comes from him, right? If Mary pours out this expensive ointment, is God then going to be lacking in what he gives to you so that you can help the poor? No. She hasn't diminished what he has at all. He still has an infinite amount of resources. And there's an appropriate place for extravagant ways of glorifying God, of saying he is amazing. There's always opportunity to help the poor in this life. He says, you you haven't missed that opportunity. It'll it'll be there. As long as you're alive in this world, there will be poor people you can help. Do that. It's encouraged. The law said to do it, right? But this is a unique time. Mary could only do this thing for Jesus in that particular time. If she hadn't, the opportunity would be missed. Do we live in such a time? Are there things that we have a unique opportunity to do right now that we'll never in all of eternity have the opportunity? Yeah. Yeah, we have the opportunity to share the gospel with people who haven't believed in Jesus. We have the opportunity to to, to lift up people who live in a sinful, sin-cursed world. Someday in eternity, the curse will be gone, sin will be gone. People's eternal destinies will be sealed. We won't have the opportunity to interact with those things like we can now, and bring God's grace and mercy and love into them. Same thing with Mary. Jesus would only be on earth for a short amount of time now. She's taking that opportunity. She's being generous with what has been given to her by God, and there's a place for that. But then we also have another group that John actually doesn't mention, but I want to bring up here, is the other 11 disciples. We do know they are there with Jesus. And we know from Matthew and Mark that some of them joined in with what Judas had to say. If you go back again to to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, it makes that clear. Mark 14, 4 and 5. 
And this follows right after her pouring the, the ointment on Jesus' head. It says, For some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Now John leaves out the fact that there were multiple disciples who get after Mary for that. Apparently, Judas's approach worked on some of them, right? They heard Judas's words, oh, we should be helping the poor. And they're like, oh, you're right, we should be helping the poor. Maybe, maybe Mary shouldn't have poured that ointment out on Jesus. Maybe they had been guilted into joining in with Judas and his, his attack on Mary. Maybe they were a bit like some of us. <laughs> what a waste. You're just pouring this out. And then it's gone. Years worth of wages. And then most of them were working men. They understood the value of a denarii. Denarius? Yeah. A wage. And they knew what kind of work went into that. But they were pulled along with that. And that's something we should stop and think about too. We can be pulled along with people who sound good, sound religious, and end up actually attacking people who are doing good things. Got to be on guard against that. Be watching our hearts, examining our hearts as we move along. And the disciples were at a very unique place right now. They are trying to comprehend what's going on. They have followed Jesus. They have set aside their way of living. Some of them fishermen have walked away from their nets. Right? And they're hoping that Jesus is going to get rid of the Romans. I'm sure many of them. Certainly Simon the Zealot probably had thought of that. They're thinking, can't we be an independent nation? Can't we have the glory that we once had before under King David? And yet Jesus, over the last few weeks, has more than once said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to arrest me, and I'm going to be beaten and humiliated and killed. Yet on the third day I will rise. And yet the, the reports keep coming back, but they couldn't comprehend what he was saying. They didn't grasp what Jesus was talking about. Matter of fact, you know, during that time period is when James and John came to Jesus and said, can one of us sit on your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom? And here in a few days in the upper room, the whole group's going to be arguing about which one of them is the greatest as Jesus is ready to go to the cross. They're in a unique spot. Do you ever feel like the disciples in that spot? <laughs> Try to figure out what God's doing? Why he lets things happen the way they do? Why is it things are so hard? That's where these, these guys are, and yet also they've got grand visions and hopes. But what Jesus keeps telling them doesn't seem to match up with their hopes. They've also been watching the, the amazing, glorious things Jesus is doing. You know, he heals a man born blind and a couple of other people born blind. He, they've been eating with a tax collector and all of his friends. Uh, there's so many different things swirling around them. And at this point, it really becomes obvious that Jesus cares about that. Because we've reached chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. We're only about halfway through. Yet chronologically, we've come to the last week of Jesus' life. 
We still have about half of the Gospel of John left, and it's almost all about Jesus teaching his disciples and helping them to really know who he is, to understand what's about to happen to him. At least they'll be able to look back or think back to what he taught them and know what's going on. And preparing them then to go out to the world and say, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so Jesus understands the place they're in, and he is going to lovingly, carefully, sometimes by rebuking, sometimes by encouraging, sometimes just by teaching, help them to know him and be ready for what it was he has for them. And aren't we glad that we have the same Savior, right? Who in our confusion and our difficulties and our misunderstanding him keeps on gently teaching us, carefully rebuking us, moving us to what is truly good. And then we have one more group, the Jewish leaders. Verses 10 and 11 says, but the chief priests planned to put, well, no, let's start in verse 9, actually. That's too critical to go with what happens with the Jewish leaders. It says, the large crowd, we introduce our first group again, right, of Jews, then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So the Jewish leaders, we learned back in chapter 11, verse 53, were now working together. The Sadducees, priests, the Pharisees, or the rabbis, had always been at each other, right? always had this this ongoing struggle with one another, a continual feud. They've set that feud aside for the time and have joined forces in order to arrest Jesus and kill him and get rid of him. And verse 57 here tells us now they've involved the people. It says they, they have given orders that anyone who knew where he was was to report it so that they might seize him. So they're pressing a choice on the people. Whose side are you on? You have to either be on our side or Jesus' side. If you're on our side and we're the ones who hold the power, or so they thought, you'll tell us where Jesus is so we can arrest him, so we can get rid of him. And what is it they want to do on top of killing Jesus? According to verses 10 and 11 there of chapter 12, they even want to kill Lazarus. It's interesting that when we turn and make choices to sin, one sin is not enough. It then leads, unless we repent, to another sin. And unless we repent, to more sin. Isn't it amazing how sin and hatred compound themselves? Once we choose them, they demand more and more acts of sin and hatred. Who would think that someone would want to kill a man who was raised from the dead? But Lazarus was a threat to their idol. They wanted the power. They wanted the influence in the nation. Because here was living, breathing proof of who Jesus is. He couldn't be allowed to stay. They had to get rid of Jesus, and they had to get rid of this huge piece of evidence that he is the one who can give life. He was a threat 
to what they worshipped, which was power and influence. Because people were believing in Jesus instead of listening to them, instead of following them and their traditions and their, all of their ways that they had heaped on top of God's law. And they would not stand for this. So be careful. Be careful what you truly worship. It will show in your actions and what it is you decide you have to get rid of. When you put some, anything higher than God and the worship of Him and the knowing of Him, it will demand that you get rid of those things that worship God. It will say, no, you can't be in fellowship on a regular basis. You can't be in God's Word on a regular basis. You can't order your life in such a way that you follow God's ways. Those have to go because you must have, and you fill in the blank, what it is you worship. And there's a, there's a different thing to worship for every single person, I think. Maybe it's a great marriage. Maybe it's peace within your household. Maybe it's money. Maybe it is power, like, like the, the Jewish leaders. But we all have that threat of something that we want more than we want God. And we have to submit that to Him so that, that we head in the right direction. Who would have thought that a simple meal <coughs> would bring out so many different heart attitudes? But please ask yourself, how is your heart like each of these we've looked at? We can examine our hearts without fear <coughs> because Jesus cares so much about changing them. So don't be afraid of opening your heart up and saying, Lord, look me over. Let me know what's going on inside of me. Entrust yourself to the Holy Spirit to guide your heart and your mind in that examination. If you haven't actually said to Jesus, yes, I believe in you. I entrust you to forgive me of my sins because you died in my place. If you haven't said to him, please give me the gift of eternal life so I can walk with you forever, that's your first step. And then help, allow him to change you, to transform you day by day into being what he's like once you're securely in him. In fact, we can then pray the words of King David in Psalm 139. Without fear and with anticipation, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And he will be faithful to answer that prayer and to lovingly help us to be transformed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have that opportunity. Though so easy to, to avoid it, so easy to, to keep on living for other things rather than knowing you. But I pray that you would give us willing hearts to open up to you and, and to be willing to be transformed by your power, by your word, in the fellowship of your people, uh, to what is, what is truly good. Help us to use these mirrors in, in John's gospel to, to help us to see things that we might not see otherwise. Just thank you for the good that you want to do in our hearts and lives. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.